You're listening to a Hindustan Times podcast brought to you by HD Smartcast. Hi, this is Manjula Narayan, National Books Editor Hindustan Times, and this is the Books and Authors podcast. It's a weekly podcast where I speak to authors who've got a new book out. Hi, so today we have with us uh, Naveena Najat Haider, who's edited Jali, Lattice of Divine Light in Mughal Architecture. Hi, uh, Naveena. Hi, how are you? Fine, fine. So, you know, this is a lovely book and, you know, I mean, one sees Jali's wherever one goes in Delhi, but, you know, I, I don't know. It's only when I saw this book that I thought, oh, wow, you know, there's a book devoted to just Jali's. You know, and why hasn't somebody done this before? So within the world of art history and architectural studies, um, Jalis have actually been studied in, by different scholars. Uh, I mean, there's a very important book that I <clears throat> found very helpful, which is by uh, Professor Dhaki, uh, who was in Banaras, based in Banaras. And it was called, I think it was called The Temple Traceries. And okay. it documents a huge amount of um, variations in the world of temples. So that was a kind of foundational book. There's also a sort of, uh, quite, a f- quite a few books now coming out on um, details of architecture, such as tile work or, you know, some form of decorative ornament. Uh, in fact, George Michel has done a whole book called The Majesty of Mughal Ornament and uh, sort of creates a catalogue of all the different, um, you know, features of Mughal ornament and architecture. And then this sort of expands on that. And furthermore, there will be studies, I'm sure, on, um, and there already again have been articles, but maybe there'll be whole books on on Pietra Dura or some of the other techniques that we see of Mughal ornament. So um, in other words, I feel that basically we're looking, we're beginning to look in more detail at the construction of uh, Mughal buildings because they consist of many fine features, each of which has an individual story. Okay, right. So right, you know, in the preface, you say that the Mughal Jalis had to be understood within the context of earlier traditions of stone carving in the subcontinent and wider exchanges with other parts of Asia and the Mediterranean. Do you want to like, you know, talk about that? Right. Yes. So, I mean, like so many features of Mughal architecture and art, I mean, it's the, the what you see in in this ornamental and functional style or feature of the Jali, you see a really a marriage between traditions, some of which involve techniques that have evolved over many centuries within the subcontinent, specifically stone cutting and carving. Um, and then the other element would be the styles and the vision behind these this element, which evo- involves influences from the Middle East, um, yes. from Europe, um, and also sort of uh, traditions from India itself. So this kind of combination of uh, local techniques, I really give the credit to the local uh, technique here when it comes to stone carving, because the Indian tradition in stone carving was extraordinary and, and you know, distinctive from other kind of parts of the world mm. um and yet it was very open um sort of open to and receptive to new influences and new challenges because carving is um probably you know skills that are passed down from father to son and they yes. and over the certain guilds and then they're done in certain ways and so the challenge of breaking from those certain ways and and absorbing new um influences and rising to new challenges is not a small one it shows that uh, artisans, craftsmen, designers, ustads were able to do that and as a result created some amazing 
works of art in the form of jali carving. Hmm. And this passing down from generation to generation, I mean, it still goes on, right? I mean, I think the last chapter deals with the modern, uh, 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 you know, the modern jalis, use of jalis in, in, mm-hmm. in contemporary architecture. There's a whole chapter and I found that very interesting. So, yeah. So the contemporary was an interesting chapter to do. So when we were doing this book, we didn't really want to just end on the end of the Mughal tradition, because just like everything that was wonderful in the Mughal period, it finally came to an end because of all kinds of changes from the Mughal patronage um, mm-hmm. having come to an end to the you know forces of modernity, well, colonialism and then modernity that, that caused huge changes and ruptures in the way things were done. So, yes. uh, so we, but I, I really felt that we didn't want to end the book on that kind of negative note because that's the story of everything. Then that's moral essentially, and um, and yet there's an afterlife, and yet there's a kind of memory, and there's so many things that come even after the the story's over. So, mm-hmm. um, and that brings us into modernity, and the fact that one of the few elements that survives from traditional architecture in the modern age is the jali screen. Not only yes. does it survive, it is in fact the signifier of a kind of Islamicate identity to buildings globally, worldwide. Mm -hmm. Many, many architects have used this feature uh, in different materials and styles to kind of signal an identity or a uh, personality to their buildings when everything else can be completely plain, let's say, or modern uh, or free of decorative and functional features of this particular kind. This lingers. This and the and the chajja, I guess, were the other two, the other feature that lingers. And that's also very much to do in the case of India to do with the climate and yes. the the actual um, context within which buildings are being created, which is I mean, the sun is hotter and fiercer than ever and the climate is more challenging than ever. So, I mean, I think that's also, you know, part of the, the kind of practicality and the function of it. But what's interesting de- design-wise and artistically is that um, you have new materials and you have new styles and you have new visions behind um, behind the creation of these lattices um, and new meanings to the light. Because in the Mughal period, it was really, I think what's what's also fascinating is that these are not just functional objects, and they're not just um, even design and ornamental uh, features of a of a building. But the Jali screen in the Mughal context really goes back to a kind of um, symbolism and allegorical language, almost dealing with the nature of light itself, mm-hmm. its uh, important place in the Mughal artistic imagination and self-imagination and um, storytelling. Um, and <clears throat> and so a lot of things in Mughal art are built around light or with the metaphor of light at, as a central yes. uh, m- motif. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, but in modernity, our thoughts have changed. Um, you know, we don't necessarily use those, <clears throat> have the same sort of approach. Different things are, <clears throat> excuse me, at work here. One of them, for example, being um, being this idea of um, well, practicality and mm-hmm. um, equality that is kind of dominating. That that we're really looking at modernity as a an equalizing kind of space where uh, the jali screen becomes a strictly practical and functional feature, yes. um, almost deliberately stripped of meaning, but mm-hmm. still very much uh, present uh, as a 
as a kind of definer. I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah, I found it interesting that you know you've included the work of Laurie Baker in in Trivandrum, which is like so far away from you know the Mughal centers, you know. And but but it's really interesting. I never thought of Laurie Baker's work as in this jali through this prism of the jali, you know. And so this is quite. rewarding in some way to make that you know for me to read it and make that connection i thought that was really nice and once it's mentioned then i was thinking of the the coffee house in trivandrum and thinking yeah <laughs> you know it does work so that sort of i loved this chapter a lot as a result thank of you. these things thank you yeah it was really fun thinking about modernity and suddenly looking at it with new eyes and realizing that one of the big challenges for modern buildings was you know cooling and um you know keeping the the airflow and trying to do it in an economical way and you had people like Lori Baker who were you know so advanced in their concerns for environment and their understanding mm-hmm. of of minimizing the dependence of a building on on um, factors like air conditioning and so on yes. mechanical you know cooling so using kind of ancient technologies and old approaches to ventilation to airflow and to filtering light uh mm. to 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 create these kind of skins around the building that that had a great function um but also had great aesthetic character because um i think that's one of the lovely things about lorry baker's buildings that they have such ca- aesthetic um and uh, character and personality um so Yeah, it was a discovery for me too, and there was a lot more we could have put in because lots of variations on that theme. Um, but he he was definitely somebody special. Mm-hmm. And and similarly, you know, I hadn't thought of Stein also using uh, you know the jali. I mean, I've seen the the IIC building, and you know, uh, seen those jalis, those porcelain jalis. But again, I didn't connect it to jalis, Mughal jalis, and you know. which are everywhere and or you know you go to fatehpur sikri you go to uh, you know red fort you see them and you appreciate them but the contemporary uh, inspirations i mean the contemporary you know manifestations of those jalis that's nice you know that it's been highlighted in this book thank you <laughs> so you know do you, do you want to talk about uh, i mean you know and also this even even the tomb of fakhruddin ali ahmed you know so this this chapter was it you know was it easy or was it like something that uh, um, just... <clears throat> so for me it, this chapter was very difficult because i'm not um specialist in in mod- modernity modern architecture in fact you know the whole thing has been a challenge because i'm really trained as an art historian working with mostly books on paper and objects but so approaching architecture was a new challenge for me luckily i had these great partners in the field i mean we have um george michel who's one of the contributors to the book um eber koch who's another contributor to the book and um James Ivory wrote a short piece. Yes. He he has great insights in into architecture and um and then of course Mitchell Abdul Karim Kreitz who was the major um sort of guide in this in this exploration who, who knows the architecture of South Asia very very well and the Islamic mm-hmm. world. So with these partners I think it was very um you know sort of rewarding and encouraging and helpful to have you know this dialogue uh, and have them there involved in this whole project um when it comes to um the the mod- modern section 
I think uh, all of us were kind of trained in history. That was a kind of exciting challenge for everybody. And um, I had a lot of help there from, well, from photographers who'd looked at modern architecture, such as Ram Rahman, whose works are reproduced there, and and, and others too, um, and who have a real understanding of architecture. Manu Rewal, whose father yes. um, designed the, the Hall of Nations, and all those people shared um, resources and information that helped me better understand um, how to approach that particular chapter and in the end um in the end it was it was still it was still a challenge because there's a whole language of you know around architecture in modernity that i mean had to be i, I can't say i used it very much but it was one has to have an awareness of how people write and think about it mm-hmm. and um even terms like you know the international style for example which was yes. a, a subset you know the uh, you know sort of well-established styles of of architecture and and stylistic expression that were going around the world Mm. and uh, South Asia India was part of that you know sort of dialogue so you know just understanding how to use and apply those terms to the buildings that we're seeing in India um, reading about that was a little bit of a challenge but um, so you can see I kept the text pretty light and the pictures pretty heavy (laughs) that was one solution Um, in the sense I let the pictures and images speak for themselves because um, you know you didn't they didn't need that much help but every now and then you know grouping them and pointing out their major features um, was something that one had to do. Yes. You know, and you mentioned Mitchell Abdul Karim Kreitz's um, essay, The Jali Tradition, Master Craftsmanship and Patronage. And this is interesting because, um, you know, one doesn't realize or I mean, maybe most people don't think about it so much. But, you know, there's so many people who are carrying on the tradition and, you know, he's mentioned craftsmen who've been doing this for generations, you know, going back, I mean, at least 500 years, many families. So, yes, you know. uh, it's true. He has great knowledge of craftsmen. He's worked with craftsmen and he's very committed to um, crafts, uh, craftsmen and, and craft in India and particularly this craft and different types of architectural carving and um and decoration and and that's uh you know i mean as i said in the beginning you know stone carving is really one of the great accomplishments of indian architecture altogether i mean for a very very long you know millennia long story and um some of the the amazing things that you see in rock cut caves for example or temples you realize that that from father to son to grandson it was multiple generations of of carvers who were handed the project and from the beginning to the end they never got to see what they were creating in the end yes. but the temple merged after seven generations or eight generations and and it's just such a, a tribute to that concentration to be able to execute the the sustained patronage the uh, sustained communication across so many generations and across so much time to in the end create something that is so perfect so impressive and you see that in many many of the early rock cut carvings that I mentioned in the book and when it comes to the feature of the jali you also uh, you know had to you know it's part of that larger rock cutting and carving tradition Um, when you sort of come to the Mughal period which is much later you have 
you know, we don't really completely understand how those techniques were done because um, there is this kind of great symmetry that comes about in Mughal architecture. The elements of Mughal architecture are very effectively balanced and reproduced almost perfectly. Um, and how, whether this, what were the uses or the methodologies, we don't completely know that. Actually, we know very little about that. Um, but so today's craftsmen are important resources for us trying to imagine how things were done in the past, um, mm. which is where you know, Mitch Kreitz has been extremely helpful in interacting with the craftsmen and helping us have that dialogue and understand the approaches that they may have knowingly or even unknowingly inherited from very much earlier tradition uh, generations. Yeah, yeah. And this, um, I think it's the frozen, um, frozen music atelier, you know, um, and they are famous, but I'm, I'm sure there are many others who are also in the business, right? So, mm, yes. Um, I mean, yes, yes, it is. So, you know, the technical part of it, the techniques are one part of the story. And, you know, they're the most, I mean, very important, the execution of these pieces of these elements, but also the styles and the language which they're speaking is very important. And the way we approach it in the book was to basically divide it into three sections. So the, the heart of the book is based, is really about the Mughal Jali and the great moment for the Mughal Jali when it really came into its own was in the Shah Jahan period, because yes. Shah Jahani architecture is above and beyond, you know, even in the world of extraordinary architecture of, of the Mughal age, Shah Jahan was and has been seen as the greatest builder of the Mughal age. And every feature of buildings made in the Shah Jahan period has, uh, have, have uh, you know, have their own merit. So yes. the Jali, along with the inlay decoration, along with the carving, along with the overall structures, everything is a kind of symphony um, of, of that comes together and the jali is just one note in the in the symphony however i do feel that the jali had a special place because it wasn't just uh decorative it had this function and it filtered the light onto the most sacred spots in around the graves around the shrines of 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 saints um and it filtered the light and created this kind of metaphorical language about which in, in, involved the interaction of light and shadow um, in the creation of spaces and in the experience of spaces for people who visited these shrines and who continue to visit them or visit these spaces. So that's that was one of the kind of put, kicking it up to yet a greater level um, in the Shah Jahan period. And, and one of the sources that I cited was, um, you know, well, several sources were actually about in, in the literature on the architecture of the Islamic world really talks, there have been so many incredible scholars who've talked about the importance of light and the use of light in the construction of edifices in Islam and the traditions of Islam, which is a very important kind of, it's a very important element. So that comes into the Shah Jahan period and into Mughal architecture in general. Um, but also from more ancient traditions within the country, uh, you have sacred symbols, which really come in through the Gujarat Sultanate, adopted mm -hmm. from earlier temple designs. You have a kind of language of geometric and celestial ornament, which yes. is evolved through the Middle Eastern, uh, mainly through the Delhi Sultanate and then, um, you know, beyond. Uh, and then you find you also have European influence, which, of course, is very apparent in Shah Jahani buildings. Um, yes. and, and suddenly these 
these incredible um, uh, artisans are now, you know, creating European lyres and vases, open work vases, and 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 demonstrating yet again a new um, phase of their talent and their and their ability to to carve and and uh, respond to designs and create designs. Do you want to talk about how you know the the spiritual aspect of it? You know, because many of the uh, jollies, I mean, the the prominent thing with many Indians, at least when you, you know, you go to places like um, Sufi shrines, you know, whether you're Hindu or Muslim or whatever, you know, you, the, the tying of uh, those threads, you know, uh, on the jalis, that's, that's a, which, which again, you may, you know, he, I think Kreitz mentions in his uh, essay about Medanta and that's something mm-hmm. else, you know, Medanta hospital in Gurgaon. And that's one mm-hmm. thing I noticed, the first thing I noticed when I stepped into that hospital for whatever horrible reason one went there was this you know the tree of life the jali and everybody was tying their strings there and you know it really was a great it's a great idea because it recalls you know the spiritual aspects and sufi shrines and you know the comfort of that so do you want to talk about you know the unconscious um you know connection to that as well Mm-hmm. Well, um, so Jali screens are an important feature of shrines around yeah. the graves of Sufi saints most of the time. Yeah. And this happens, um, you know, begins to happen, I guess, in with the Gujarat Sultanate, you, you have some important shrines that have incredible sort of entire walls of, of kind of filtered light around them because of the Jali screens that have been created. And important uh, Sufis, Sufi uh, figures such as Muhammad Ghos in, in uh, Gwalior, these are incredibly massive screens and incredible visual effects that are created by um by these screens and then when you enter the space for example in Muhammad Ghos inside the very heart of the shrine you'll find the grave marker is in, in also enclosed in a small smaller jali um sort of enclosure reproducing the effect of the entire of of what's on the outside as well you know sort of layered uh, effect of 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 screened shrine within within the thing mm-hmm. um and so for a pilgrim or a visitor to these sacred spaces who are seeking the blessings of the interred or to pay their respects really encountering this jali screen is one of the most uh, important things that happens i mean it's the main point of encounter their focus of course is on the on the grave markers themselves but the interaction most of the time they they have a small opportunity to circumambulate the grave or the grave marker but really the time that they spend in meditation and seat and prayer and encounter is with the screen that is that is surrounding this yes. entire edifice and so um very naturally over time these screens became the focal point of uh of attention of um prayer of of uh, you know the, the the wishes of the person who's come to visit visit the shrine and the person who comes is not just only by one religion alone but one of the wonderful things about these shrines is that everybody visits these shrines it's one of the great stories of indian pilgrimage that that the sufi shrines um, are visited by people of all faiths and yes. everyone wants the blessings of the peer or whoever's inside the shrine so the tying of the string on the shrine is something that you begin to see and again I, we don't know how far we assume that this is went back right to the very beginning in iran you have a tradition of people visiting shrines and tying lock uh, 
attaching a lock onto the onto the shirt. Similar sort of idea yes, yes. Um, of making of your you know sort of bonding yourself in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is an I, I found that just extraordinary that people continue to do that, and um, it's just a, such a simple and touching um thing that you see in on jali screens around shrines particularly those hopes those dreams and those prayers that are um for, expressed in the form of these these strings that are tied um that are tied there yeah so basically the point being that you have this living uh, culture around the jali screen which involves tying the strings and the jali being the focal point of uh, of prayer of of wish uh fulfillment and also encounter for the pilgrim mm-hmm. so i i i see that that's a very important thing and one of the great things in this book that i thought was so um, you know appropriate for all kinds of reasons was that our main photographer apart from being a brilliant photographer abhinav goswami is also a trained temple priest from yes Brad. i read that i read that <laughs> and in his uh, one of the most extraordinary photographs comes from his temple in braj where during every season of seva particular season for the seva for uh 13 or 15 days they create um a daily jali for the god and the goddess made of fresh jasmine flowers yes. and that may be the most precious jali because it lasts just a day and but it and it's it's just quite an amazing thing and we have a photograph of that um yes. in in so um so i think that the the jali in the sacred space as a focal point for you know for pilgrims and for ritual is sort of a, a notable feature of its on you know existing life in south asia Hmm. And I notice, you know, it, this is something that you know when when one goes to Sufi shrines, like one went to, uh, you know, Fatehpur Sikri, and you know, I saw those jalis, and what struck me was exactly what you mentioned. You know, it looks so light and airy, but it's it's not. It's marble, and they're huge mm-hmm. panels. You know, so that that is uh, adds to your sense of wonder, right? So you want to talk about that. Well thank you so much for bringing up that point. Firstly what I really liked about James Ivory's piece was exactly that his his encounter with Jali he just had a short piece but he he said that the he realized that Indian craftsmen were able to create an opposite effect to what they did with in temples where the weight of the stone and the heaviness of the stone is so felt and you feel this kind of sort of epic uh, sort of sculptural tradition sitting firmly on the ground and sort of rooted to the soil and emerging from it and that's one kind of feeling that you get when you go to to temples and then he said he encountered the exact opposite when he went into into um, um some of the tombs and the shrines which were decorated and and embellished with jalis where he says that all that stone had been taken away and all this light had been brought in and it became just the opposite of of the other experience where here now you had airy spaces filled with this kind of dappled light surrounding yes. the tombs and he said who who wouldn't want to lie down here forever <laughs> which is a... <laughs> his piece no. is quite poetic actually the last you know it's the last one right mm-hmm, where yes. he ends with how he's shooting uh, the women through the jalis in the red fort and yeah. that was just beautiful i like that that reference too because basically another thing i think when the idea of a jali is also relates very much to the way i think in india and in other parts of the world maybe but certainly in india one sees things i mean isn't always it isn't always a direct view yes. um uh, quite often we frame things and we filter things um we layer our views of everything and we have um 
how do I put it, oblique views of things. And and I mean, when I say views, I literally mean visual views, but also the way one thinks about things is a kind of oblique approach to, to, to any issue. And so the Jali for me also became a kind of key to um, the way one the way the mind almost one thinks in 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 india not always just directly approaching things but through layers and through filters and through um uh, you know sort of frameworks that that exist um and 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 that became a kind of a metaphor for me approaching this as well because uh it was just interesting it's very different from the kind of directly kind of in your face view even when you come to mughal building i mean you enter you never just walk up to the building i mean if you enter the taj the way you first experience it is you you enter through a kind of pathway where you go um into through a gate into a sort of small way area where you see a wall and you can't see the monument at all and then you're forced to turn right and then you turn around and once you've been your your entry has been controlled and you go around the corner then the majestic view of the taj appears before you and that whole experience of controlling the view of of approaching it in a kind of uh, considered way this mm-hmm. this is part of the whole moral approach to everything and that's what i one of the things that's so um impressive about mughal art and architecture that everything is considered to the ultimate degree of experience, of your experience and of the aesthetic um language of of the of the of whatever you're doing this chapter about you know the the deccan sultanates and uh, and the gujarat uh, uh you know jalis that's also really fascinating i mean i haven't looked uh, unlike you know the northern jalis and uh I, I, and the southern temples I, I haven't seen the personally you know i've only seen pictures and they, those are amazing the pictures in this book as well you know of the tree of life and and all that do you want to talk about and this 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 particular uh, bit the tree of life imagery reflects the importance of the tree motif as an ancient symbol of protection fertility and divinity in indian art and architecture Images of the wish-fulfilling tree, Kalpa Vriksh, and auspicious vines, Varli Jataka, and leaves, uh, Patra Jataka, appear widely in architectural ornament. Flowering trees and mosque and tomb decoration evoke the tree of immortality, or the blessed tree in paradise, Tuba, mentioned in the Quran, and other metaphorical and actual trees described in Islamic literary and poetic tradition. The Siddhi Said Jalis therefore blend the ideals of Indian and Islamic beneficence through their multi-layered and richly inflected arboreal imagery and powerful aesthetic language. So, you know, I thought that was a, a paragraph that kind of said a lot of things. Do you want to discuss, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, thank you for bringing up, of course, the most beautiful Jalis, um, maybe anywhere, are those the the two sort of tree jalis in the in the Siddhi Sayed Mosque in in Ahmedabad. Yes. And um, anytime you say jali to people, that's the one that comes to their mind. And obviously, we had to deal with that in the book uh, as a centerpiece and really try and contextualize and understand how those incredible works of art have come to be. And there they are installed as marvelous things in the middle of a busy sort of uh, you know roundabout in 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 Ahmedabad. So um, I I guess I have to say that I still don't know. I mean, there's no definitive answer about this motif, the motif of trees in 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 the context of a mosque, in that mosque particularly. Um, I mean, there's no single reason or single symbolism 
that may be associated with them. And they are in very prominent positions on the Qibla wall. The Qibla wall is the wall in, in a mosque that gives the direction of prayer towards Mecca. Mm-hmm. And uh, typically the Qibla wall also has a mehrab niche in it, which gives the direction, you know, and indicates that this is the Qibla wall. Uh, in the case of the Siddi Sayyid mosque, there would have been presumably three such jalis, including one over the central mehrab, but that's actually been, that's m- missing or was never completed. I mean, I think the general thought is that it was never completed completed because this the the Mughal annexation of Gujarat uh, the you know it happened just at that around that time so possibly the work on this this structure was uh, interrupted but uh, <clears throat> there are all sorts of conspiracy theories also about there was a great jali and it was spirited away but no one's ever seen it so um those those just are kind of part of the law and legend of that building um but but the point being that you would have had this incredible vision of a qibla wall surmounted by these three uh, tree of life style jalis and so the question comes about do they have a singular meaning um a symbolism of this extremely exalted position that they're installed in what does it mean in the context of this particular mosque and any mosque um now having posed the question i can say there's no single answer to that because uh well one we don't know all the mo- motivations and stories behind the, this this particular and many you know sort of design decisions in 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 mughal and southern architecture um but also you know it's it, it, this isn't a very simple you know um, emblematic or you know sort of reductive these are more more sort of uh, images i i felt that they were and that's how i wrote about them you know evoking multiple um kind of references and feelings and aspects and meditate meditations even in in the um in the person who's experiencing them um so i I proposed from my readings that there was a again a combination of factors. One is the kind of long tradition of these trees and sacred trees in Indian culture. They're absolutely central to Indian culture, whether it's the Buddha who achieves enlightenment under a tree, uh, to the kind of tree that bestows um, endless good things on people who worship it and support it too. The love that the average Indian and person has for a tree, because um, trees are just so uh, appreciated and adore, you know and appear in 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 art and architecture in so many forms. So there is there is that, and then <clears throat> within the Quranic tradition and the Islamic tradition, much more complex because obviously we're talking about many different environments and landscapes in which the language of trees was cited or not cited. And so I I can't really look at all of the Middle East, for example, or all of North mm-hmm. Africa and say, well, this is one singular meaning. You you want to sort of again do a sort of very specific contextualization in each instance. But when you do go back to one central text, which is the Quran, um, and you look at at the mention of trees, there are uh, trees in the Garden of Paradise that are evoked in the text. Uh, And I mentioned two of those uh, references in in, in my discussion. Again, these are trees in some sense of the imagination as well, because I think it's Tuba tree that is so described as being so wide and far-reaching and protective that a traveler can cross, takes him a hundred days to cross the shadow of the tuba tree, uh, which offers him this protection under which he moves. And again, there's a kind of a tree of endless wish fulfillment as well that is mentioned. So th- there's just a kind of language of trees that that um, that come into this, potentially come into this mosque uh, designed from various sources, or they certainly speak to various traditions. Um, and that's 
that's sort of what we evoked, uh, you know, I, in the discussion. But ultimately, I would say that even having gone into it, the trees um, in that particular mosque and the trees still retain their secrets. We don't really know. Uh, we wonder. And that's really, and almost in some sense, you don't want to entirely decode because there is a mysticism and a sense of wonder at the marriage of nature and art, um, which you see in, in the production of those particular incredible jalis that uh, that lingers and, and um remains mm-hmm. and since we're talking about trees you know i think in in some essay there's a mention of how uh, uh you know buddhist caves um you know they had they had teak uh jalis um yes which, which kind of i mm-hmm. mean have been lost because of time of course and then uh, at various power pa- points in the book there's also a mention of you know certain temple uh, carvings which are almost jali like in kerala and also in kashmir you know and mm-hmm. i was wondering like, uh, and, and there's also mention of the unforgiving climate right which makes it difficult for these wooden jalis to be preserved and yet in these instances strangely you know very rare instances they've been preserved um yeah that so obviously the big sort of missing piece of Indian architecture that predates all stone architecture is wooden architecture. That's what we've yes. been told. And actually, you can see the translation of wooden forms into stone in in, in, in various points of sto- early stone architecture. And, and George Michel has suggested that many in his essay, which is really dealing with the subject, that many... Um, aspects of early you know rock cut carving in 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 caves that he cites uh and temples were based on wooden jali structures that no longer exist uh, mm-hmm. but they give the form that is then translated into stone mm-hmm. so uh now their survival i mean from most of the most of India, the Indian subcontinent, does not have surviving woodwork from a very early period. However, yes. at the fringes of the kind of place, you have from Kerala and Kashmir, the two sort of ends of things, you, you have more of a surviving wooden tradition. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are many factors that go into it. I would say that obviously... Um, Climate uh, preservation and ongoing traditions are, are part of it. In but if you look at the dates of things, you know they actually a lot of these things are replacements over time because even in those areas you don't really have woodwork of great 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 antiquity because it just can't survive in even in the Kashmiri climate. I think very limited. So one of the um, jalis that we published from one of the Sultanate shrines in Kashmir in the end was an 18th century jali that was really also revealed that it's 18th century from its style that had changed but set into a 14th century building um which goes to show that you know constant replacements were required i mean and we keep reading about fires and so on in in the south i think most of the i mean again i think i think we have the dates in the book for for most yes. of them but then you know you'll find that a lot of the most magnificently best surviving ones are maybe 19th century uh, presumably based on on earlier styles and i i found this great you know and it's and it also made me think and this is kind of ignored generally i mean you know tribal um, contributions to art and i found it great that you've included this this the work yeah. of baby sonavni contemporary yeah. jali screen and it's such a beautiful jali screen yeah I mean, it is it's amazing it's so intricate and it's so it's lovely so, yes it's very charming with the little birds that have been yeah, uh, put in yeah, yeah. So this was a great discovery by mitch kreitz so he deserves 
a lot of the credit for this book because many, many of these discoveries are ones that he has made. Um, and he travels a country and he knows uh, he's very, very, as I mentioned, interested in craftspeople and what they're doing and village traditions and folk traditions. And so he came upon um, this particular artist who's a woman artist from a tribal uh, context. And she created a, a Jali screen out of simple materials that actually goes back maybe 2000 years in its actual visual language and that it uses a kind of grid format that is, is very, very ancient and, and uses symbols adapted and sort of simplified, but that really go back in the vocabulary of Indian and Gujarat sacred language in many, you know, many, many centuries, and then has added her own little very uh, adorable touches, such as the little birds that are uh, sitting amongst all of this um, decoration. So we were very excited when we saw that that work and we felt we had to include it. And we did. And we put it in the Gujarat chapter, which it kind of takes the story forward from, you know, the kind of medieval period all the way to, to the contemporary period. And it was just an amazing uh, longevity of design that had that had survived and the language of design so yeah it was great to have that yeah it's, it's just it's just beautiful i was quite taken by it you know and uh, right so which one what's your personal you know favorite among i mean i was thinking of the early salt for me the early salt mm -hmm. uh, you know uh, like the, the ones in celest celestial geometry jalis of the northern and central sultanates the the pictures in this i mean especially the ones um, you know of these kind of jalis are ones that appeal to me and you know these are ones that one sees here in in delhi um, especially so i mean visually which ones appeal to you um that's a, a difficult question so you to, yeah so i mean Different ones appeal to me for different reasons. I think in the Delhi context, there's that wonderful little monument in the Qutub complex, which is a tomb uh, of... Imam Zameen. Yeah, yeah, Imam Zameen. Sorry. sorry. <laughs> so my favorite. So let's see. I like different ones for different reasons. So the Imam Zameen tomb uh, is... We have a wonderful photograph of it um, yeah. in the book. And it's a tomb in the Qutub Minar complex, which is dated to 1538. And it's yeah. quite a small tomb. When you enter the space, um, it's an intimate space. And the walls are entirely um, made of jalis, uh, jali screens, quite tall ones in red sandstone. And yeah. when you uh, hit the right moment, and the day, of course, this, the light and the sun keeps changing in the day, but there are certain moments in the day when the light comes in an, an absolute perfection, which we try to capture in the photograph that you can see the whole tomb is filled with this incredible patterning and light. And you really get a sense of a transformed space when you're when you're in the in there at that moment. Mm -hmm. So I, I really think that's a remarkable space. And those are not individual jalis that I love, but the whole um, effect of them together. I think it's brilliantly done in that particular space. So I, I love that tomb for that reason. Mm -hmm. And um, also, I do appreciate the the geometric, uh, the commitment to this kind of geometric form in there. It's like very mathematical, very precise. Yes. And that aesthetic comes in from um, a kind of commitment to geometry and math and science that is yes. very much a contribution of the Islamic world uh, yes. from the medieval period 
onwards. Um, the whole language of decoration and ornamentation took a great uh, sort of shift towards mastering geometric forms um, in different ways. And, and Islamic architecture achieves that in so many extraordinary contributions from the development of the muqarnas, which is a kind of hanging and corner element, which mm-hmm. uh, is a zone of transition between a kind of round dome and a square base. You often have these decorated corners of incredible complexity and geometric forms which achieve that transition and that's a kind of great feature of Islamic architecture to the to the domes itself where the vault of heaven is realized through you know um, this kind of celestial half celestial orb above you to the kind of filtration of light that you see through the Jali screens or through the uh, Mashrabiya screens or through uh, the the different sorts of windows and the, the treatment of light throughout I think that whole marriage between science and mathematics and light is one of the great contributions of Islamic architecture to the world and has come to India and and expressed itself through new materials and new responses in South Asia in which we see in this tomb. So I love the fact that this particular tomb represents such a long journey of very important ideas uh, crystallized to a kind of little moment of perfection and Indian expression. So that's one of my favorite little spaces. Then from, um, well, it's hard not to sort of completely love the great Mughal Jalis of the Akbar and Jahangir period, but I would say that the tomb of uh, Salim Chishti in Fatih is a great highlight. Um, But there yeah, absolutely incredible space. But then there were other wonderful discoveries like the, uh, you know, spaces, the upper section of the tomb of Itmadu Dola in, in Agra, mm-hmm. which was built by Nur Jaha for her parents. Yes. Um, possibly has very similar designs to the to the tomb of uh, Sheikh Salim Chishti. And I sometimes wonder if the same workshop was involved quite possibly. Mm-hmm. But those are really, again, celestial spaces where um, it's just impossible to capture even in a, in a photograph you have to really experience what what light and what the jali screens do to those spaces and how they function those spaces i think those are extraordinary um spaces so i love those too and then um you know we did i was involved for many years on working on the deccan region of india because mm-hmm. we did an exhibition in 2015 at the met on the deccan and um, in the Deccan, you see things that you don't see anywhere else in the world because they have such an original imagination and such, um, you know, unique way of doing things. Mm-hmm. Um, and among them, uh, I thought I have never really actually seen anything this magnificent is in the tomb of Ibrahim Adil Shah II, who was mm-hmm. a contemporary more or less of Jahangir in the early 17th century. His mm-hmm. tomb is surrounded, is, is, is firstly, it's an incredible um edifice absolutely covered in calligraphic ornament um the superb uh styles of calligraphy uh, quoting mm-hmm. the quran and quoting the hadith and quoting other islamic sources and we've actually published all of the inscriptions in in 2008 um mm-hmm. and, and then among them are uh, in the the doorways are surmounted by jalis of Quranic calligraphy completely pierced through. And and of, there were originally 12, only one and a half, I think, survived now. But mm-hmm. when I saw those, I just thought, wow, I've seen, here's something I've never seen anywhere before in the world. The Quran created in 
in a pierced stone style by Indian calligraphers, who were able to take a massive stone and turn it into the sacred words of the Quran in the lightest, most deft way possible. And um, when I was doing the research on this particular style, because I think it's just so extraordinary, technically yes. extraordinary, and and in terms of it's the idea behind it is just so extraordinary to have the light filtered through those letters in stone. I mean, and on yes. that monumental level. Um, I, I, we did find that there were um, a couple of very rare examples, one in woodwork uh, or, you know, in Kashgar and one or two others kind of related things. But really, these stood out as, as you know, monumental and imp- very, very important in their own right. And they related to um, objects, uh, the whole art of pierced calligraphy in, in, in the creation of objects, Um in a wider context. So there was a kind of great interplay between works of art, such as mm-hmm. candlestick holders and alums and, and even pierced plaques for door decoration in Iran and the kind of style style that you found in the Deccan. So those are also among my favorites. Um, but, you know, it's hard to choose because we, you know, when, when you get into it, this is just one little subject. I, I love every, you know, everyone has its merit. There wasn't a single Jali in this book that I didn't or somebody in our group didn't say, wow, that's <laughs> that just got to be in there. It's just so, <laughs> so impressive. Um, and in the end, it's a tribute to, you know, the, the unknown craftsman, the unknown artisan yes. who has been able to execute and realize these designs and in, in turn stone into air. That is just an incredible you know, achievement. Um, but also the cultural dialogue behind the evolution of these forms that we are really looking at South Asia as a place of the meeting of many traditions and the perfection of many ideas um, in, in this particular art. Yeah. And also, you know, I found this in, in the in Jali mania from Rajputs to the Raj, you know, this thing about the Jali and the Zanana and, you know, women uh, women behind the Jalis and watching the world through that. You, that whole image of it, you know. Do you want to talk about that? Because that's oh. a very powerful yeah. thing, right? So. It is. So that that really takes you into the... Fu- uh, so, you know, writing about the Jali, it's, kind, it's actually very challenging because it's not really something that you can't just describe one after the next. That's extremely, um, you know, boring for any reader yes. after a certain yeah. point and even for the writer. <laughs> and also you can't, you know, once you've explained the styles and, you know, you, what, what beyond that, you have to try and find things to say about the Jali that make it meaningful in, in our lives and in our history, in our history. So um, at, at every chapter, I tried to, you know, approach it with the storytelling as well uh, in a certain way, whether it's uh, whether the Jali involves the kind of great patrons who commissioned those buildings, or the great people who are interred within them, the life around them, um, so that the Jali is not just an architectural feature, but it's it's part of life and it's part of a way of looking at society, looking at history even. And so when we came to Rajasthan, uh, because the Jalis are so prominent in the women's quarters there, it seemed very like a natural place to talk about the life of, of women behind the Jali and um, and go into that a little bit. So uh, one of the interesting things is that, you know, we, um, I mean, I had worked in an earlier 
phase of life on on Kishangarh, which is one of the Rajput courts. And um, Heidi Powells has just come out with her excellent book on um, the authorship of one of the Kishangarh important feminine figures who's known as Bani Thani in popular yes. um, parts. But she was a kind of poetess, a writer, a very accomplished woman uh, in her own right, uh, and a great symbol of Kishangarh refinement and um, an, an ideal. So she was a woman who, for example, was writing from behind the jali. Uh, I mean, there is this idea that that women in that period in the 18th century were secluded uh, and living uh, kind of and you know lives that were are very unknown. But their voices emerged through the literature that they produce. And so um, having a little touch of her real name was Vishnu Priya. Little touch of Vishnu Priya from behind the jali was there. I, I, I wish I'd included a quote from her actually, but I did include a quote from Mirabai uh, yes, in the very beginning. Yes. <laughs> and yes. actually doing those quotes was kind of fun too because that was another way of livening up each chapter and and giving it its own flavor so um yeah that was but to finish on the women i think you know you have to read history and you have to kind of use your imagination because the women are very important at all these courts and and their great stories and literature to be found from in in in, uh, in from the world of women And, you know, and you've, there's this picture of the Bikanir uh, uh, Fool Mehel, you know, the Junagad Fort. Yes. I've been there and, and to Jaisalmer and you, I don't know, some, it struck me that, you know, as you go further into Rajasthan, it gets more ornate somehow, you know, and the jalis get more complicated or the ideas behind them. It just might be, you know, because they're just trying to like keep out the heat. But mm-hmm. do you think... Uh, Is that well, the case? Right. Is it just my imagination? Um, no, I think by the time you read Jaisalmer, you're in this world of incredible jalis. I mean, you have this feels like a whole city of jalis, and yeah, and the effect yeah. on the on the eye is unbelievable because you're just surrounded by these these incro- incredibly carved screens, and uh, you know evokes uh, which evoke history in, in such a particular way. No, and and also people talk about Jaisalmer as being you know sort of rising out of the context of the desert and how mm-hmm. <clears throat> there's a great relation. relationship in art between kind of the starkness sometimes or the challenge let's say of the landscape and the rich ornamentation you find that in in other places in the middle east too for example there's um at the met we have the reconstruction with real panels of a room from nishapur which is in mm, a 12th iran. century town in 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 iran mm-hmm. and the the we have photographs from the original site this was came out of an archaeological dig so in the 20s and 30s so the original site was extremely barren and there's a photograph of this room buried in this extremely des- barren desert landscape and when you look at the designs on the walls of the room they are richly ornamented with images of leaves and plants and extremely detailed um visions really of a garden like uh, environment um and often you find that the the very harshness of the desert or the challenges of that particular environment stimulate the imagination to creating a vision of just the opposite because you have to actually live in that space um and it's it's just an interesting contrast you sometimes feel that in in areas of rajasthan where the landscape can be harsh and yeah. the ornamentation so rich that yeah. you almost feel that the imagination flowers in that challenge in in a, in a special way so yeah I do, i do see that in rajasthan and mm-hmm. and also we put in those uh, jalis also because sometimes you know the at one particular point 
stained glass became the all the rage and so the whole effect of light coming through color colored yes, glass yes um, became an important aesthetic in 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 Rajasthan and in other parts of uh, the world so anyway you, you we had some images of the stained glass uh, jalis which are kind of fun yeah this kishangarh uh, not kishangarh this uh, junagarh fort had a lot of that as well stained glass if i remember correctly and there's a beautiful um, i think it's it's this british artist who's done that you know this painting of this woman this lady in the zanana you know with um, visitors so that's another beautiful one which kind of brings out both the jali as well as the stained glass effect so mm-hmm. yeah yeah um so we could did you see the pictures um i mean of stuart carey welch and yes, the yes. Uh, jali that he designed yeah yeah, so, that one. Yes, we had a lot of fun with it. So the book, in some sense, was really inspired by um, an American art historian whose name is Stuart Carey Welch, and we he loved Jali's, and he created a space for himself in his house in New Hampshire, which he calls Jali Mahal, which is actually an incredible space because he was also an artist and a designer, and he um, he built this room, he designed the furniture in a kind of Turkish style, and he and it's a very clean and simple room without a lot of ornamentation except. For these stunning jalis, and he 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 had one in his kitchen. I remember seeing which he uh, tied to wooden beams with with thick Indian ropes. And so these kind of things had a huge impression on on my my um, left a huge impression on my mind um, because I've never seen anyone you know until I met Carrie you know love jalis that much, love Indian architecture and every element of it and do things in new ways with with these pieces and he was also somebody who worked very closely with Mitch Kreitz and was known to all the other contributors to this book very well so uh, one way or the other um, obviously he became the person to whom we dedicated the book he inspired us to actually explore this area and he passed away uh, you know some years ago but we included photographs of his Jali Mahal in here and a photograph yeah. of him actually lying down and enjoying a Jali which he says the best way to enjoy them is horizontal uh, so to lie down and, and be in the space but he also then designed um, jalis which were made in Jaipur um, okay. in a craftsman workshop and so we've actually published some of his own work for the first time um, oh. and I, it'll establish that he was a very creative um, artist I mean in his own right so uh, for example he designed a Romanesque crucifix jali yes. which is incredible thing and, and it was beautifully photographed with the light coming through it again illuminating yes. the edges of the crosses so that that looked amazing then he designed one that looks like it's sort of spaghetti uh, yeah. gone wild um, and it, it's a little bit fleshy and makes you a little bit uncomfortable and that was part of the part of the idea that he had he was quite um, a badmash you know so he, <laughs> he, he did and that was made by the craftsman in, in Jaipur also so we, we included this kind of thing because this is really about you know the artistic imagination and where it goes in this medium so we were able to include his works there okay great so so you know Naveen I can keep talking to you about this we can go on and on but (laughs) we'll have to end but for the listeners go out and get Jali Lattice of Divine Light in Mughal Architecture by Naveena Najat Haider it is a lovely book I mean you know one is in India at least one is surrounded by beautiful architecture and Jalis and one takes it for granted but when you see it in a book you kind of realize oh you know it's so wonderful all over again you know that i mean 
so it's it's a nice um, nice book to look at and it's uh, so thank you so much navina for talking thank you thank you it's been lovely talking to you thank you so much for your appreciation of the book and the work that's gone into it it's really been a pleasure okay yeah, bye. bye bye to stay updated on this podcast follow us at hd smartcast on all the major social media platforms to listen to more such podcasts log on to www.hdsmartcast.com